This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Hello, everyone. Welcome. I know it's been a few weeks since I've podcasted. I have been oot in a boot. Well, I was not in Canada, but I was damn close to it. I was just south of Lake Erie in two beautiful places. Uh, I was at the Chautauqua Institution for about two weeks. And while I was there, I was also visiting Jamestown and being a part of the opening of the National Comedy Center in Jamestown, New York. And you ask, Jamestown, New York, Kelly, why such an obscure place would you be there? And would the National Comedy Center be there? Well, because it is Lucille Ball's hometown. She was born there. I don't know how long she was raised there, but she was born there. And it was her dying wishes that Jamestown become a place that celebrates the art of comedy, the story of comedy in America. And so, damn it, it has. And it's fucking incredible. It's a $50 million complex center museum. Uh, and it is uh, has represents every genre of comedy. It is a place where you could spend... Uh, easily three days going through. It's just, it's just, you unpack it, unpack it. It's like peeling off layers of onions. It's spectacular. I highly recommend if you live in the region, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, Indiana, Kentucky, uh, the New England area. If you're in Toronto, Canada, come on down. London, Ontario, come on down. It really, really is. There's nothing like it. Nothing like it on the planet. It is the first thing ever to really celebrate comedy in all of its genres, whether it's stand-up, sitcom, movies, uh, cartoons, sketch, late night, uh, you name it. It has the genre, and it also has a special exhibit of my dad's stuff. Uh, I donated the archives about two years ago, and they have done a spectacular job of... uh, scanning the material. There's over 25,000 pieces in my dad's archives, and you can drill down through an interactive uh, monitor, touchscreen thing. Anyway, go online, check it out. Go on my social media. I've been talking about it for the last few weeks. Uh, and, And go. Just get in the fucking car and go, okay? All right. And I've also was at Chautauqua for two weeks, uh, Chautauqua Institution, which was incredible. I got to teach a class called Befriending the Inner Voices of Dissent, which was profound and deep and amazing and had 15 to 18 people in my class every day where we dove into the unconscious and pulled out our personal shadows and talked to them, had conversation with all the parts of us that we normally want to hide from the world. And it was freeing and transforming and enlightening and uh, uh, just powerful, 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 powerful experience for me also in leading it. So today I have a guest. I know it's been a while since I've had a guest. Oh, and that was my roof. You know about that. My heat, uh, the heat, the cool, the cool, the heat, the expansion, everything of these timbers (laughs) makes it go crazy. Uh, But today I have a guest. And this guest is someone who I have, uh, before I met her, uh, had known about her for, oh, I don't know, over a decade at least, uh, was one of those people that was always on my radar and her work was always on my radar. And 
uh, it was like, I just know that someday I'm going to meet this person and we're going to get along and we're going to do something together. And well, that all came true. <laughs> That's just a weird thing. It's just one of those intuitive, like off in the ether, some kind of feelings. Uh, so my guest today is Hope Edelman. And I'm sure you recognize, I, whenever I say your name, Hope, to people, people, people are always like, oh yeah, I know who she is. Oh yeah, you're very famous, Hope. You are. Uh, her her biggest claim to fame is her book Motherless Daughters, which came out 1994. Okay, that's crazy. That's nuts. It's in its third edition. Wow. Yeah. So, um, and uh, this book had a, a huge impact on the culture because it was something that um, no one was really talking about at all. And well, a first of all. We don't really talk about death in this culture. <laughs> and then, therefore, we don't talk about grief or loss. Uh, and we just pretend that everything's fine. And if we just go to the mall and buy a few more things, um, everything will be everything will be great. So it had a huge impact on women, obviously, who had had this early mother loss. And, uh, you know, unless you were in a grief group specifically for something like this, most people you know, you're not having conversations out in the world for this kind of stuff. So, Hope, how did how did this book come to you? Why did you, I mean, you had your own personal mother loss, but then how did you get the wherewithal to actually decide to have a conversation with the world about it? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I needed to have a conversation with someone about it because <laughs> no one was talking to me. Uh, I was 15 when my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, and it was quite advanced at that point. And mm. she lived for about a year and a half and died when I was 17. It was mm. the summer before my senior year in high school, and I had two younger siblings. And our dad continued to raise us. But um, the ethos of the 1980s bereavement uh, was to just soldier on, yeah. you know, to not talk about it, to paper over it to move on, to get back to life. These were all the kinds of catchphrases that were floating around then and still do now. Mm -hmm. and we're better than we were in the 80s at dealing with it, but not by a whole lot. Yeah. Um, at least, you know, in the U.S., in U.S. culture. Uh, so I started looking for a book when I was a teenager because I wanted to know what to expect and why I was not getting over it quickly. And the only books I could find about the death of a mother assumed that women were in their 40s or 50s or later when it happened because statistically that was much more probable. Right. And I didn't know that many other girls who'd lost their moms. There was one girl in my high school, and of course there was my sister, my younger sister, but um, we weren't really talking about it. So I kept periodically going to bookstores and libraries, you know, in college and then in my first job. And I landed in graduate school in my mid-20s and I was taking a creative nonfiction, mm -hmm. master's degree. And I, it started coming out in the essays that I was writing for my workshops. Mm -hmm. And one of my professors really encouraged me to explore it more. Yeah. It was uh, such a blessing. Mary Swander was my professor. She's now the Poet Laureate of Iowa. So oh, wow. she's super smart. And was this at in Iowa that you did? This was in Iowa City oh, okay. yeah, at the University of Iowa. And Mary encouraged me to write about it. And once I started writing about it, it just spilled out, you know, because... I hadn't been writing or talk, talking or writing about it. And from there, I started thinking, well, you know, darn it, there's no book out there. And here I am in a graduate writing program. Maybe I should just, you know, take the leap and write it myself. Wow. And that's how it came about. That's, first of all, to be 20-something and to decide, I'm going to write a book about, I mean, that's really... I don't know what I was thinking. It was such hubris. But 
But that's the beauty of being 20-something, too. I mean, you're either, com- in some ways, we're completely lost in our 20s. Right. And yet we also think we know everything. Well, it was both. I was lost. And, <laughs> uh, I was 27, I think, when I decided to write that book. It actually came about because I was writing an essay about Bruce Springsteen, hmm. which led me to write about my high school boyfriend, who hmm. I met after my mother died, which led me to then write about the climate in which our relationship sprouted, which was this... deep grief inside your grief and then i started writing about my mother dying for the first time and and mary said oh boy just take this and run with it yeah and that's how it happened so in the book you don't just talk about your own experience but you went out into the world to talk to other women about their loss and their experience right trying to gather data (laughs) i'm guessing in some way like hey what's what happened with you or right and and what's the main um, if there's one thread that goes through everything, what have you found about this mother loss that really um, settles into women's lives or their approach to it? That it's not something you get over, mm. which is an unrealistic expectation that's placed on us by cultural messages. That the truth is that it will always be with you and it will show up in different ways throughout the course of your life at some very predictable times. Yeah. And that's what I noticed among the women like, because I just had them tell their stories. Um, like transitional events, like graduations and weddings is a big I one. I bet weddings or having a child. Transition to parenthood. The yeah. transition to motherhood is probably the biggest one for the women who have children. But there's also other losses in your life, like a divorce um, mm. well, or you know, the loss of a job, all times when you want your mom there to celebrate with you or to comfort you. <laughs> yeah. And those were predictable. But then there were very individual times, too, that had to do with your family. Like, let's say Halloween was your mom's favorite holiday. So mm. Halloween might bring that up for you and bring up a reactivation or a resurgence of grief. And that was actually fairly normal among this population, although at the time— there were quite a few people in the bereavement community who considered that a form of pathological grieving. Wow. And so women wouldn't talk about it because yeah. they didn't want other people to know that something was wrong with them Yeah, because that's how they felt. So it was a way to normalize the experience mm-hmm. for everyone. Mm-hmm. But it was so healing for me. 92 women I interviewed. I listened to 92 stories. Mm. This was before Skype. I did them all in person. <laughs> wow. So I sat and just listened yeah. and asked some questions. But it was remarkable how similar our stories were, regardless of how old we were when our moms died or how our moms died. After a certain distance from the death, we were really all telling variations of the same story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know for me, I lost my mom at age 34, mm-hmm. which, which is, is still pretty young. It's still young. I mean, yeah. she was 57. Still, still too soon. It's still, put it that oh, way. for sure. Yeah. It's still too soon. And it took me, I mean, I was pretty much emotionally non-functional for, I mean, the first year was almost impossible for me. I, I mean, walking around life as a zombie, I, I, I couldn't connect to anything. I couldn't get, I couldn't feel life at all around me or near me, or it was just such a dark and such a, a plunging place I went. And it was, and it, and it you know and it would it would then begin to 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 come and go a little bit and like that cyclical thing and then the anniversaries like you said were just stupid horrible the worst i mean the first christmas my mother was my the mother first was everything. yeah my mother was christmas i mean she like loved to buy way too many things for people and and me 
And I just looked at my dad. I said, we cannot be in Los Angeles for Christmas. We have to get out of this city. And we all went to the big island in Hawaii, which was actually a very healing and beautiful thing. But um, I remember a year after my mom died, my dad started dating someone. And she like didn't get at all like why three years or four years in, I was still grieving. I was still heartbroken. My body still ached for sure. my mother because- you know, and it, I think it also depends. I'm sure you talk to other women about really how close you you were with your mom. I mean, my mom and I spoke on the phone at least once a day. That's how close we were. Mm-hmm. So when she died, it was like a limb had been cut off because she was just a part of my conversation. Absolutely. Every single day of my life. And in my head conversation every single day. And um, this woman that my dad was dating, she, after my dad died... And she's been in grief, deep, deep grief for him. I think she still is after 10 years. She, after about three years, she said to me, she says, I just want to apologize and let you know that I mm-hmm. totally understand now. <laughs> she just didn't get it. That's the thing. That's yeah. why those of us who have lost somebody, especially when we're young, really crave the company of each other because mm. you're sitting with people who understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, one of the things about that, I mean, one of the things I learned when I went to grad school, so after my mom died, I ended up going to Pacifica and immersing myself in, for my own thesis, uh, the Persephone Demeter myth, which is mm-hmm. the mother-daughter myth. And there's a lot, and I wrote about it because the, the grief that the, it's the mother loss in, in the myth because Persephone gets abducted into the underworld. And Demeter doesn't know where she is, and she grieves, and then nothing grows on the earth. And there's this there's this whole thing winter. about the, the cycle. Right, exactly. Winter and seasons, all that kind of stuff. And, and the thing I loved about um, working with myths in general is that you can, even when you're inside your own experience, you can stand in for each of the actors in the myth and mm-hmm. feel whatever they're doing. So there's the Persephone part of it, there's the Demeter, there's the Zeus. All of that. And so really getting a chance to understand also what's on the other side of grief. That if you really let yourself grieve properly, mm-hmm. then there is a gift and a treasure mm-hmm. that if you don't grieve, you will never reach because you're kind of frozen in time. And I wonder for yourself, um, when the what what grief what you know what is the grief gift that came into your life whether it was 5 10 15 20 years later mm-hmm. what is what is the richness of life that you've gotten because of this experience that's a good question and i like the way you say the grief gift mm. that's nice I, I'm writing now, I'm working on a new book, and I'm writing about what I call the missing elements of grief. I don't like stages of grief. Yeah. Because, because it's, there's no stage. There's no one way to do it. There's no one way to do it. There's no one size fits all. Um, this idea that there are five stages that we need to get through, and then we'll reach this, you know, <laughs> oh. pinnacle of acceptance or resolution or closure, whatever that yeah. is, um, is just, it's been so roundly debunked by the professional community, but it's still so attractive to you know, well, we all want popular yeah. <laughs> culture because we all want to believe that we can get past this terrible pain that you know we're experiencing. We will get past it, as you said. That mm. first year is really hard. There's a philosopher named Thomas Adig whose work I really like, and he talks. He writes about bereavement, and he says that 
the, the first year or two is really all about relearning how to live in the world. Wow. Without that person. Yep. You know, in our physical environment and, you know, our, and as our emotional anchor in the mortal world. Yeah. Right. And developing some kind of new relationship with them after they've passed. But it really is about figuring out, you know, how you're going to, what's, what's it going to be like to not talk with your mom every day? Yep. You know, to, to, or to, have to keep bumping up against the desire to pick up the phone and the reminder that you can't hear her voice. And I just basically did pick up the phone that first year and I would have fake conversations with my mother because I knew exactly what she would say. It's actually really healing. It was very healing actually. Yeah, that's great. It was very powerful for me. Yeah. 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 And so the first year is really all about that. But I talk about the missing elements of grief because I think for me, they came all in one rush. You know, there was the anger, the helplessness, the disbelief, the powerlessness, the sleeplessness, all of that. Um, and I, you know, you just sort of, I sort of moved around between them for a while and then I just couldn't handle it as a kid. And mm. this is very typical for children, even though I was 17, I was still a kid. Absolutely. You just sort of push it away and say, I can't do this. You know, it's like, I'll just push it away and I'll pretend it's not there. You have no awareness at that age that it's going to come back to bite you later. It always does one way or another. It comes out through your body. It mm-hmm. comes out in your relationships. It comes out in your mental health. Um, but I just set it aside as best I could. And it, Although it did, you know, sometimes just show up like a dagger in the heart without warning when someone said, oh, you, you know, is your mom coming to, to tonight? Yeah. Or, you know, where are you, what are your parents doing this weekend? And I'd have to figure explain. out how am I going to answer that if, yep. I, if I even wanted to explain. But the missing elements, I think, when you do allow yourself to grieve, and this is to, to your point about the gift, I think are appreciation and gratitude for mm-hmm. the, life, the life that we have, mm-hmm. you know, and its fragility, the wonder at, at it, the awe, um, humility, I mm. think is, and grace, I yeah. think are gifts that you can achieve. Uh, but it does take some, you know, concerted effort if it's not coming naturally. If you're someone like me who pushed it aside, you have to be willing to go back and and reconnect with that younger self that didn't do the grieving and mm-hmm. bring her or him up to date. And then I think you can find all of those. And I've met many, many people. I've interviewed 75 people from my new book. And Many of them talk about how grateful they are, you know, just that they're healthy or that they're getting to see their kids graduate from high school, which my mom never got to do. So I've got one kid already in college and one who's now in high school. Right. And my sister and I together are both like, God, if we can just get the second one to high school graduation, we've like, this is like a huge accomplishment to do that in our family. It's a big deal. And more so than it might be in other families and but I'm grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I'm um I'm 55 so I'm approaching this age mm. where my mother died. Significant transition. That's a big one yeah. I forgot to mention that. My mom was 42 so I'm past so that. So you're past it. Yeah, yeah. And uh yeah, it it is it is like a thing that looms a little bit there but um yeah, and I, I love what you talked about. You, you mentioned the wonder and the awe, and that was one of the biggest experiences for me. Even the first week after my mother died, even though I was plunged into um, – the only way I can describe it is the numinous state that uh, uh, opens up around the death of a loved one, that there is a – a veil that comes down around death. And I I felt like I was living in two worlds. I was so connected to an enormous sense of love, Mm -hmm. an unconditional space of love that was so intense and beautiful. My mother was a very, very beloved person. She had hundreds of people in her life that she had 
helped through AA, and she was one of those healers that never went and did the professional healing. I mean, she did a little bit, but um, she was this um, buoy for most people in her life. And she was a person, when she walked into a room, literally lit it up. Like, my mother was one of those people. And there was this I mean, not only the deep loss that everyone was feeling, but there was so much love from my mother in the space around her. And during the week of between her death and the memorial, and the memorial itself, my dear friend Teresa, who was like, uh, who was like a sister to me and was like a second daughter to my mom, she and I that week and forevermore, we talk about how, even though it was one of the most heartbreaking days of our life, my mother's memorial, it was also one of the most beautiful days of our life. Mm-hmm. Because there was an unabashed, unfiltered expression of love that we don't do except in those moments. And so that for me has been one of the biggest gifts of really like getting like, if you don't do it now, whether it's love or gratitude or appreciating the beauty around you or speaking your truth, whatever it is, if you don't do it now, there's no doing it like because we all know it could happen right you know and 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 i think that is you know part of our human brains do so well which is denial which is like oh that death thing oh that's other people do that or other families go through that or oh look at that war zone 10,000 miles away isn't that sad or whatever but the closer it gets to home mm-hmm. the more you go Oh, yes. Shit. It's really cataclysmic to experience that when you're young. Yeah. Um, Which is one reason why there are quite a lot of women and men, but women is my area of research, who have experienced an early loss and really like hopped to it with their ambition, thinking life could be short. Mm Mm-hmm. Many of us carry this belief we might not live longer than our mothers did. Yep. So let's get on it let's, and get on it now. Yep. And I mean, it's Madonna, Anna Quinlan, Rosie O'Donnell, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. These are all women who were, you know, children or teenagers when their moms died and had this awareness. Um, so that can tend that can what that can do is sort of kick a existing talent into high gear. Yes. In a way, and give them the determination and the and the drive to accomplish things quickly and and efficiently. Um, it can also go the other way if you don't have support, mm-hmm. you know, in the aftermath. And, mm. you know, there are, you know, a lot of women who wind up um, addicted, incarcerated. It's, you know, it's clearly can can go in both directions. Mm-hmm. So I don't mean to uh, just tell you the, the sweet part of it because right. I've met women who've gone, you know, at, made different choices at, the, at various crossroads. But... But it is true that um, even now, but certainly back at the time when Mm -hmm. we were younger, there was so little support for um, children or even for adults at time of grief, you know, during that bereavement phase. Or what you're describing, I think, sounds also like that liminal phase. Yeah. You know, after someone has died, but Mm -hmm. while you're still feeling their presence in the world everywhere. Everywhere. have to be reminded constantly that they're no longer physically here and figure out, you know, what the future will look, your future will look like rewriting your story forward without that person as an active participant, but now as an inspiration or a memory. Mm-hmm. That's a very different experience, and it takes time to learn how to do that. Yeah, and I just love that you mentioned the ambition thing, because my ambition was also ignited 
for the first time in my life. It was like, oh, life is short. Like, if I want to be an artist and do things, yeah, now is the time to do it. Um, and uh, oh, what else was going to say? Oh, well. uh, but I was curious also. I mean, you've been in this world now for twenty some odd years, and and doing this work, and and in this thing. That have you come across men who have done the work around fatherless sons and mm-hmm. some and and I mean it's it's got to be a, a very it's it well obviously the, the mother versus the father dynamic is so different and if you're a woman or a man it is so different it's like all these different kind of combinations of energies that come about yes um, and also there are very different cultural messages about grieving for men and women yeah and different messages that we internalize and then there are also I I honestly think you know biological or physiological differences that mm. that um have men and women grieve differently. So it looks differently. They're doing the same work. They're just doing it in ways that look so different that it's hard for women to believe that men are actually getting it done. And it's hard for <laughs> men to believe that this could be helpful to women. But you know, you know, the you know, the the sort of like, you know, the the 10 second explanation is mm-hmm. that women tend to reach out to other people and externalize their grief through talking or writing or therapy. Not all women, but, right. you know, th- it's a gross overgeneralization, but it does hold up statistically. And men tend to grieve through action. Mm. So they'll, you know, put together a photo album or they'll work on the car or, you know, whatever it is. And to women, it looks like they're escaping when, right. in fact, they are actually thinking through, you know, their internal process. They're metabolizing they're, it their own exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That is fascinating. Mm-hmm. As I see my husband doing another project around the house. <laughs> Well, yes, and that Which is incredibly does anyway, healthy for them. But yeah. It's incredibly healthy for them. And, you know, women have to understand that this is how men grieve. And men also have to understand that women need to talk about it. And if they can't be there for their partners or their daughters or their sisters, then, mm-hmm. you know, it would be really helpful to, to help them find the people that find they the can pe- talk to or support them in that effort. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I'm just so curious, just as a writer... Um, and, and we're going to get uh, we're going to transition in a minute into something different. But as a writer, you have been writing about this topic for what number book is this you're working on? Number eight. Okay. Oh. So you've been working on this material for a while, and now you're working on bereavement again. Mm-hmm. What is what is it about this that keeps bringing you back to the well? Um, the fact that we're still not getting it right as a culture. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say right because I don't really believe in right and wrong. I, we're not doing a better job as a culture to support people who are grieving and help them, as you said, metabolize that grief mm. into something positive. Mm. When we're leaving people alone with their grief or their mourning or suppressing it, you mm. know, in a worst case scenario or, or forcibly blocking it by not giving them outlets or forums for it. Um we're watching it come out in other ways. And I really, it's my belief that unmourned losses are a public health crisis in this country mm. because it's coming out in illness. It's coming out as anger. Yeah. You know, it's it's coming out as people, uh, addictions. Mm. And um, so I keep writing about it because I, there's still a need, I think, for the public to try to learn more and help each other through it. Um, it's. I wish I didn't feel the need to write about it. It would be great if I could write a book that would like put myself out of business and then I'll write novels about something else. But um, but my new book really takes motherless daughters and expands it to a wider audience. It's looking at what an, the early loss or really any a long ago loss, I say, because mm. you could be in your 30s and now be in your 60s and wondering it's 30 years. Why am I not over it yet? That's yeah. the cultural catchphrase. Yeah. 
But this new book is for men and women who've lost a mother, father, sibling, or close friend mm-hmm. at an impressionable age. Let's mm-hmm. just say that. Mm-hmm. And um, and have felt that, you know, that brush with the mystery and the awe of death creates an existential crisis. There's no Truly. way. I mean, you know, someone was here and now they're not. It's, Where did they go? It's so How do I find them? It's like really hard for an adult to figure that out. Yeah. Imagine a kid with no support trying to handle that on their own. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking at that and now and examining that and its effect in my own life and other people and talking with some really smart experts who are helping to change the conversation about grief. It is mm. a slow moving ship, yeah. but I think it's gaining steam. Yeah. There are some really key people working in this field to bring us into what is now being called a relational model of grief instead Mm. of the stage model of grief. Mm. And the relational model of grief is all about finding ways to stay connected to our loved ones because the Freudian, it started with Freud and then amped up over the 20th century, this idea that we have to let go of people after they died has done us such a cultural disservice. Well, and, and I know the work that I've done personally and the work that I foster with people is, I mean, for me, it wasn't about letting go of my mother. It was about letting go of some aspects of a relation of our relationship that mm. was not serving me. Yes. And that important. had had limited me um, because of the storylines and the narrative I had took on about mm-hmm. who I felt she was and how she looked at me and and her her pain. It was her wounding and her pain that as you know, we all take on our parents' stuff. I mean, we live out our parents' shadows, basically. And so what I did and have done and spent a lot of time on was letting go of the parts of her that I knew had nothing to do with me, that was her pain, her wounding, for her to take forward into whatever imaginal field that is you think, Mm -hmm. whether you think there's an afterlife or a heaven or it's just all energy, whatever it Mm -hmm. is, but there's a releasing of it, like, this is not mine, I do not need to carry this now in my body. Mom, you're gone. I'm going to let you have this with you. But then also really joining and celebrating and receiving the power and the gifts that she embodied so naturally Mm -hmm. and organically and to to make them mine in my own way Mm -hmm. and, and to... And to not borrow them, but to really know that they're in my DNA, they're in my body, that they're, mm-hmm. you know, that they're in the field between her and I. And and this beautiful ability to change from, you know, because those of us who were wounded as children and then lose a parent at some point or or don't. I mean, you have to kind of do this work anyway. This is the work of therapy. But this really sorting through what's mine and what's not mine to Absolutely. keep. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. And so then when the loss happens, it, part of it's scary because you're like, well, I can't do this work with them because they're not here anymore. And yet I found you can do the work with them. Absolutely. And um, and it's almost in some ways simpler to do yeah, the work with them. I was just going to say, it can be better because they're not interrupting you. They're not telling you that you're getting it wrong. They're not trying to insert their own agenda. You are free to do it in the way that serves you best. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. I think you're exactly right. I think that grief is can also be a process of discernment mm-hmm. where you mm-hmm. evaluate, you know, all the roles that that relationship had in your life, what it expected of you, what you got from it, 
what you are carrying from it, and then you can hold on to what has served you and let go of the rest. Yep. And then what you hold on to, like you said, you can alchemize so that it helps you achieve and live at your potential. Yep. You hold on to the good stuff. Um, and, you know, every relationship, every human relationship is an ambivalent relationship, right? We Truly. have love-hate relationships with everybody, everybody. <laughs> and those who say they don't are not telling the truth. Yeah, really. they're, they're in major denial. And so, you know, it is a process of assessment, you know, and that's hard because when someone dies, we tend to sanctify them. Yes. Especially at the memorial services, we're only talking about the good stuff because that's the place to do that. Yep. But then it's really important over time to really allow people to be the full, complex, multidimensional human beings in death that they were in life and um, allow them to have their, you know, their their drawbacks and, yeah. and, and their foibles and, and you know, and look at that and, and assess them holistically, and, right? and be which able, I think is a way to honor them uh, absolutely, as full people. Because, yeah, and then you get to empathize at, with them because you see that, you know, where their limitations were and and where their stuck places were and the and the pain they were in because of that you know right. and really unconditionally you know be able to say oh okay wow i can't like i like i'm separate i'm i'm separate now enough from this person that i see that she was just a human being trying to do the best she could yeah with what she was given you know absolutely exactly. and it requires you know um a removal of binary thinking. You yeah. have to move beyond binary thinking. The relationship was good. The relationship was bad. Um, I'm angry at my mother. I, you know, I feel compassion for my mother. You can do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, but it sometimes doesn't feel comfortable or right. I mean, I work with a lot of clients in my coaching who've lost moms when they were young and whose dads really stumbled and didn't always make good choices for their daughters, mm. yet loved them very much. Mm -hmm. And the women often feel later, well, you know, I can't be mad at my dad because he did the best I could, best he could. Right. Right. And I understand that now. And I said, well, why can't you feel compassion for your dad for doing the best he could with his limitations, but also be angry that the choices that he made didn't serve you well? Right. Because that anger can be metabolized or synthesized or alchemized into action, yep. into thoughts and action that you can apply to make the world a better place for other people, including your partners or children. You can hold those two truths side by side. Um, I feel compassion for my dad, and I love him for doing the best he could with what he had. And I'm also really still sad and upset as an adult mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, I had the childhood that I had. Right. Without right. blame, you yeah. know, without resentment. But you can still own those feelings of being sad or angry that it didn't work out. As long as they're not overtaking you and driving all of your decisions as an adult, I think they can still be put to good purpose. Yeah, because I think people fear that they're going to get stuck in the victim mode and mm -hmm. no one wants to, you know, or some people love to be there. <laughs> Sorry. Let me rephrase that. Some people love to be in the victim mode, but there's many of us who are like, well, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be self-pitying or, you know, if I get angry about this thing, then I may have to live with regret and bitterness. And there's something beyond all of that. Like what you were saying about the, the alchemizing of the anger it, I believe, and a thing that I found that really are, is hard for women, I think, is to really own the, God damn it, I deserved to have something different. And that doesn't mm -hmm. mean you can change the past or that you're going to be angry at the situation forever or whatever. 
But there's a fighting spirit inside of that. Yes. And you know what? There, I think that there are a couple ways that a woman can go with that. She can say, damn it, I deserved to have better. And so, and or my life was hard. So um, I'm going to make the world a better place for other people. So theirs doesn't have to be so hard. Mm-hmm. And, or you can go in a direction, you know, the opposite direction of that is my life was hard. So stop complaining, suck it up, you know, and deal with the hardness in your own life. I dealt with it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or, you know, you can be anywhere in between on the spectrum. Or my life was hard and I'm going to make your life hard, too. There's there's those people, too. Yeah, there are, I mean, there really is. right. right. I mean, that's what people do. Because they're unhealed, because it's an unmourned loss. You see, that's what I mean about the anger, the resentment. Yeah. Um, But once you can, you know, once you can really get in there and sit with your pain for a little while with support and, you know, hopefully with some guides that Mm -hmm. have been down this path before you and can help you through the process— you can go from being the person that says, my life was hard, so I'm going to make your life hard, to my life was hard, I want to make your life better. Yeah. And I can't believe I was ever a person who wanted to make other people's <laughs> life hard. What was I thinking? <laughs> I mean, it's possible. I, I, it absolutely is possible, uh, 100%. And I think the biggest message about all of this is that we fear that if we go down and really feel the loss and feel the grief that we will be, um, we will be disappeared by it. That we will be stuck in the black hole of it forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am here, and hope is here to say that actually, that's not how it works. That you're you you are only stuck in it when you avoid it your entire life. You're exactly right. And that is the young person's fear, by the way. Yeah. That is the child or the teenagers or the young adults' fear that I will be. Um, I will drown yeah. in this sadness. And that's often because there'll be no one there to help me yeah. through it because I'm a kid and it's too big for me. It's way too big. It's way too big. And then, you know, but as an adult, you can hopefully, you know, at least if you don't believe it yet, believe the people around you who've been through it, who tell you, no, the way the way out of it is through is it. Is through it. It really, really is. And if you come at, you know, if you're raised in a family that doesn't, that ignores emotions and ignores things like this, then you've gotten messages about how terrifying it is. So even if you're 50 years old and you lose your mother, you you may ignore all of this and fear that, oh, well, we just don't do it that way. Right. You know, family systems and family patterns are a very important yeah, part of this. I, if, you're, if you're looking around at all the adults around you who you trust to know how to walk through the world, you know, as a, as a person better than you do yet— and they all look like they're ignoring it and they're not talking about it. it. You know, the message you internalize is, well, this is something we don't talk yeah, about. Yeah, we don't do this. It still really hurts, though. What's wrong with me? Yeah. I feel like I want to talk about it, but the message I'm getting is that this is not something we discuss. Yeah. So what what do you do with that? You stuff it yep. and it shows up later. Well, this is a perfect uh, transition into uh, something that Hope and I are very excited about is that Hope and I are going to get a chance to work together this year. We've uh, known each other for a few years now. We met Mm -hmm. through Miss Annabelle Gerwich. We did. Thank you, Annabelle. Yeah, thank you, Annabelle. And uh, speaking of family dynamics, uh, Hope and I got together. We wanted to figure out what the hell could we do together? Like, let's go play somewhere. Like, we're on the same wavelength. We need to do something with that. <laughs> truly, truly. And and something that's slightly different than what we both do in the, in the world individually, but come together. And so we decided to get together and do this five-day workshop, which is called Untangling Daughterhood. 
And it's a combination of all the things that we've, A, lived because we are daughters in our own, you know, in our, with our own paths and our own, our own unfolding of that. And all of the interests that we have had, uh, research and work we've done. I mean, I wrote a memoir about being a daughter. I did a solo show about being a daughter. <laughs> I had the loss of my mother, which really shaped my understanding of who I am as a woman and really affected me. And so Hope and I are just really curious about exploring this with other women, this general feeling that maybe you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. It really doesn't matter what. Your parent can be alive or not. Yep. Either yep. way, it's, yeah. But there's a, a sense. So for me, I'll describe for me what this tangled up in daughterhood thing feels like. And then I'd love to hear from you, Hope, because I think it really, it, it, it's such an individual thing. But I think for me, some of the main kind of shades of this is that when I was most tangled up in my daughterhood, I felt invisible. I felt like I didn't have, I didn't know myself. I didn't know my own desires and my own needs. Uh, I certainly didn't, if I didn't know them, I wasn't at all clued into how to actually express them <laughs> or mm -hmm. ask for them. And everything I did in my life, I mean, this is, a, you know, codependence is another word you could use for all of this. But everything I did in my life, I kind of filtered first through very unconsciously at first until I started to recognize mm. it. I filtered it through what what would how would this would affect my relationship with my parents and what would they think about it? And it was only in my after I got out of my first marriage in my late 20s, early 30s, and had been with my husband Bob now for a few years, that I began to see how rampant this thinking was in me to the mm -hmm. point where I remember being in my kitchen one day and thought about going to a movie by myself and realized that I was checking through the choices in the newspaper through this filter about how my parents would feel about each choice. It was the most astounding insight I had about, A, mm. what the fuck do they have to do with the movie I'm going to see? But just how built in mm -hmm. and unconscious yeah. this, um, oh, you know, if you were enmeshed with your parents, I was an only child. So all of my, all of my thinking and all of my everything was filtered through this my entire childhood because of my parents' addictions and stuff. So I had like the double whammy. I had the, I had the only child thing. Plus I had the addictive parents thing, which makes the codependence even more. And then of course it was the seven, the sixties and seventies, which was just chaotic times anyway. And my parents pretty much, um, there were no rules in my house. So I think I made all the rules, and that's what I used to make all the rules, is assuming what they would think about it. So that that's my experience of being tangled up in my daughterhood. Mm. And I know for many women, they have that kind of relationship where they feel like they can't make a move on the chessboard without considering their family system in some way. Well, it's a deeply ingrained pattern, and we have all this internal messaging, and it dates way back. I mean, I would guess that 
pleasing your parents and taking care of your parents was part of how you survived as a child. 100% survival strategy. And, and so it's just, you know, it's almost baked into your DNA. Yep. I mean, but it can be undone, which is why we're doing the retreat to help and, women, you know, and, recognize In the last that 20 years, I have and been doing tools. a lot of exactly. undoing of it and have for the most part... Um, Really, I'm, I'm free of it now for the first time in my life. And now you get to look at that movie list and choose the movie that you want to see, <laughs> right? Totally, Which is yeah. what's not getting done when you're filtering it through your parents yep. and you're giving them the first, you're letting them curate the list for you and tell you what's acceptable. Yeah. And then you're choosing from that, essentially. Uh, that's a great word, actually, letting your parents curate your life for you. Uh-huh. It's, yeah. I mean, yeah. the movie list is just a metaphor probably for so many other choices. Uh, absolutely. That yeah. women make. Yeah. And so for you, how does Tang? daughterhood, both mother and father relationship, how is that manifested in your life? Uh, that's interesting. Um, you know, well, with my mother, a lot of it has to do with um, her loss, her illness and her loss and untangling the fear of developing breast cancer myself mm -hmm. and untangling the fear of reaching her age and moving beyond it. 42 was a very funky year for me, but 43 was even weirder mm. because suddenly I'm older than my mom got to be. What? And you didn't get to see her be that age? So no. there's no role model? I didn't get to see her be in her 50s, so now I'm like flying blind. Yeah. I mean, you know, most of the time I think I'm still really 35, <laughs> um, which I did get to see her be. Um, so there's that, but it's also, on, it's it's for me with my mom, it's more sorting things out than untangling, I think. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of the untangling work when I was younger. Um, with my dad, there's still a lot of untangling because, mm -hmm. you know, my my with my dad, there are a lot of trust issues, mm -hmm. um, believing that people are telling me the truth or thinking that they're not mm. because there was a lot of that going on in our relationship. My dad also uh, was an alcoholic mm -hmm. for many years, sobered up uh, about the time my first book came out, actually. Wow. Um, and so there was the patterns of trying to make choices that would not cause him to explode in anger or withdraw. Yeah. There's a lot of that. You know, I'm still working through that as an adult, you know, making choices to reduce conflict rather mm -hmm. than to actually address issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's going in and looking at where are those patterns coming from? What are the messages that I'm telling myself? Are they helping me? If they are, like, cool, let's keep them. And if they're not, how do I change them and what do I replace them with? Yeah. That's a lot of the untangling for me. And yeah. that's work that I've really only done, I'm going to say, in a big way in the past five to 10 years. My dad died when I was 40. Mm -hmm. um, and that still feels too young, you know, too oh, young for me, too oh, young yeah. for him. Definitely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's always too young. You're always too young. Yeah. I mean, although I have 70-year-old friends who now their parents are turning 100 and they're like, okay, let's be done with this. Well... <laughs> Can you imagine? Is it possible to overstay your welcome? Your as a parents parent? still be. being alive when you're seventy, still doing dealing with parental dynamic shit at seventy. Well, no, I can't actually, and I can't. And and you know, the only I think silver lining about losing parents when you're young is that I'm watching my friends now going through their parents' yes, me too. ill health oh. and deterioration, and and that's so hard. You know, it's hard in a different way. It is. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just hard in a different way, and at least. You know, I'm not facing that at this time in my uh, yeah, life when I'm facing so many other things. Me too. Um, would I rather have had them for this long and, and go through it now? I think I would. 
But, you know, that's just the what-if game. That's, right. that's the what-if game. That's not the that lot we were, really we were given. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's not the lot I was given. So yeah. I, can, I can speculate, but really it's not that productive to go there and stay there for very long. No, no. Because, yeah, exactly. It's, it, it's the, it, like you said, it's the what-if game. But, I, you know, I think what's interesting is that it is – so both of us are orphans, and we are still untangling on some level this mm-hmm. – the, the internal dynamics of family and, and what mm-hmm. happens with that – and um, and of course, most people, you know, probably a lot of people aren't orphans. They maybe have one parent gone, or or both parents, or both parents are, alive. Both parents are alive, and so the real task of untangling this stuff while you are here, you know, <laughs> we're in a heat wave here, and we have. Uh, well, I have hot flashes, and it's global warming, so it's really the triple threat. But oh, um, <laughs> it is, it's like 90-something degrees outside. It is. It's, and it's actually cooler today than it was yesterday. But um, so this, this really interesting work of learning to separate ourselves out from our family dynamics while they're still alive and and for me, I mean, in some ways, my dad is still alive. For most of America who were fans of my dad, my dad is still alive. So he's, even though his he, voice is still being heard, and, and people have a relationship and, with him, I mean, people have an intense. What's that in, like for you, Kelly? I mean, there's so many people who think they have a relationship with your father and think they know who he is, but right. you're untangling the re- real life relationship you had with him. And right now, these last two years since my book was out and I stopped doing the solo show is kind of where I finally drew the line in the sand to say, all right, I get that the world has a relationship with him. And like you said, they, and and no matter what, these people have some relationship with him inside of them. I mean, most of them are like, you know, I felt like your dad raised me. I mean, that's like, he's like an uncle George to them. He really, really is because his thinking changed their thinking and made them feel less alone in the world, which is a huge thing when you're coming of age and someone, a grown up, is saying things that you're thinking and you're afraid to say out loud. Mm. So it's, it's a huge impact he had on people's lives. And yet I have to be a separate being. And yet he's still my father and he's in my DNA and I stand on his shoulders as I do my mother. And so that there is that thing about how do we integrate the parts of them that we we want to own and 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 have in the world and mm-hmm. not have it imposed on me. So it has been even though my dad is not here and he was such a powerful force when he was here for me and I did change my life not for the better but but stopped doing work that I wanted to do in the world because it made him uncomfortable while he was alive. So when he died I had permission to do that, but it's it's still um it, it's it's still a it's still a a burden. It's still a hurdle to 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 get through, and um, mm. and so I really you know I know when we do this work with women and untangling daughterhood, I know what's going to be so important is to help them find a way to ne- to renegotiate these roles inside of themselves so that they can right. let go of the things that don't work, to empower themselves to grasp on to traits and way of being that they want to claim in the world that may upset the family dynamics a little bit. And then also be able to be in relationship if they want to be with the actual living people that... Absolutely. And, you know, to honor, look, we spent, I spent 18 years in my parents' household, you know, 17 of them with my mother present. 
And those 18 years, you know, left such an imprint on me because it's been way more than 18 years that I've been out of their house. Yep. Right? But I'm still carrying the patterns. And, and yeah. you know, I think that in this retreat, what we'll find is that, you know, one very important element is going to be to give women a safe place to break the silence yeah. on the family secrets or the, you know, the messages that have told them this is something you don't talk about. Yep. And it can be enormously freeing, but also very scary mm-hmm. to do that for the first time. Yep. Um, do you feel like you're still breaking the silence on some family secrets? Yeah. Well, I mean, writing my book was huge. Yeah, me too. I mean, it was absolutely terrifying. The night before the book came out, I thought, what the fuck have I done? Well, you're talking about things that your family wasn't, was, you know, or the messages were that you don't talk about in public or yeah. you don't tell people. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and um, I mean, I remember both after my mother died and my dad died, one of the things, one of the biggest secrets for me was to be able to say to the world, there's some part of me that's relieved. And that was terrifying Mm -hmm. to be able to say that in public because there is some part of you that has been locked in a box because of this person in your life. And therefore, even if your parent is still alive, that's usually the biggest secret is like, what's the part of you that's been locked in the box Mm. that if you don't let out, you feel like you are living a slow death and not living a life. And that's the opportunity I want to give these women in this workshop. Like you said, that safe space to own whether it's their um, their sexuality or their anger or their um, passion or their creativity or their um, or their pain, whatever it is, whether it's positive or negative, but the part of them that they've had to keep sealed up somewhere for fear if they let it out of the box that it will destroy or kill one of their parents in some way, you know? You know, that, that is so true, Kelly. And I, it makes me think, you know, one of my biggest, if not my m- most important goal as a parent, because I have two daughters, mm-hmm. is to not put my kids in a box. Yeah. You know, and to not have them grow up feeling that they've been put in a and box yet- while still maintaining safe boundaries for them. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. It's a big challenge when they're younger, you know, is to not limit them, to help them, give them the space and the freedom to achieve their own potential, but also, you know, give them a container that's safe to do that in without making them feel boxed in. That's a huge challenge. I mean, that you do the same thing in a marriage too. Yes. I mean, right? It's ideally, yeah. you know, in any close human relationship. Um, and yet I- no matter what, we get signals from family, culture, school, the media yeah. that tells us that certain parts of us are not okay. And, and it's usually, uncom- I mean, and from the family, even like having a mom like you who like is psychologically, you know, savvy and wants to create space and healthy boundaries. And, and makes mistakes all the time. <laughs> and, if, and exactly, because yeah. you have unconscious messages that are going unconsciously into your kids no matter what. I mean, it's an impossible situation being a parent. I'm, I, I think it's an impossible situation being human, but we should at least have a good time <laughs> while we're here. Right? Yes. I mean, we're going to have a good time at this retreat. It's not going to be all like no, deep work dark, and tears. It, yeah. Oh, there'll be a lot of laughter. Oh, yeah. No question about oh, that. Oh, well, with you and I in the room. <laughs> it's going to be a right? Trust, 24-7 comedy show. <laughs> Trust me. That's the one thing I love about doing these work. I just did a five-day workshop at Chautauqua, befriending the inner voices of dissent. We did all this personal shadow work. I brought so much humor into the room because I know that in, in order for the ego to let down its defenses and for the unconscious to have the safe space to come into, you have to create a sense of not um, 
not taking it's it's not about not taking things seriously because I take things very seriously, but it is about it's a light touch and it's about learning. I remember my mother used to say to me, this is the thing I used to hate my mother when she would say it to me was, Kelly, you take yourself too seriously. I was one of those kids. I was a moody girl who just was in my moodiness all the time. And my mother would Mm -hmm. say that to me and I would want to stab her with a knife. Well, because it sounds like judgment or criticism and it probably was, you know, to some extent, but there was also probably some wisdom in it. It was a huge amount of wisdom because my mother only, and this was after my mother got sober, she learned that if she didn't learn to laugh at herself and her own mistakes and her own foibles and not take her you know her failures so seriously that she would she would drink again she would use again and i was so f- terrified of failure in my life it paralyzed me mm-hmm. until until after my mother died i mean that was one of the things that woke up for me was my my like fuck it i'm just going to try it anyway um and to this day i live by that now because i see that the only way to help the ego move out of the way to give space for more mm-hmm. aspects of self to move forward is to say to it, you know what? I think you, your grip is a little tight on everything. <laughs> you know, I'm a certified life coach, and I studied with Martha Beck International, and I love her. I think she's really, really smart and kooky and funny. And But one of the, the skills that she uh, get, or one of the tools that I learned in her in her coursework is based on an ACT, which is Acceptance and Commitment um, Therapy, I think it is, ACT. Mm. And... Um, she, we would we help our clients identify some of their negative messaging, mm-hmm. and then we'll take one of their negative messages and have them sing it to us to the tune of "Happy Birthday <gasps> to You." And then we encourage them to do that oh whenever they they they, they <laughs> you know because we teach them to identify the message. So maybe the message is. Um, no one in the world understands me. Right? No one in the world understands me. No one in the world understands <laughs> me. Right. And then you teach them to sort of like get that little tune going in their head whenever they're oh replaying that message. God. And then you can't help but laugh because yeah. it's so silly. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that it's not an important message or it's not having a deep impact on you. It means let's just lighten it up a little bit and recognize it for what it is, which is a sentence. It's a thought. Yeah. And it can be either serious or it can be light. So let's just lighten it up a little bit, you know, to wiggle it, and then we can start working on the serious part. Well, because it then it allows you to get some distance from it. And when you have distance from any of these messages in our heads, mm-hmm. which is what all of this is about, all of this work ultimately is what are the secret messages in our head that are running us, that when you get some distance from it, then you get to be in choice. And being in choice is what all of this is about. Is it, are you just unconsciously being run by it, which means you're not in choice? Or can you sit back and see, all right, at some point I did feel like no one understands me. Mm -hmm. But is that true? You know, you do the Byron Katie work too. Is that true? Can you know that to be absolutely true? In every circumstance. In every circumstance. And the answer is usually no. So um, it is about really unpacking and poking holes in the tr- in these things that we mm-hmm. feel are like the truest statements about who we are in life and seeing that there's a lot of bullshit involved and in it too. And disproving it and yep. finding examples of times when in fact that wasn't true. Yep. Because um, you can almost always find an example. In narrative therapy, this is called externalizing the problem. And when you get some distance from it, you can look at it with some, with some, some uh, compassion and curiosity and even some, you know, 
criticism of yeah. your own thought. 100%. Yeah. Um, well, you can you're, appraise you're, it differently. You're using rational thinking, actually, which is what does not happen when you're stuck inside you know, what they would call the complex or, you know, whatever the, the unconscious and thought is. you're overrun by emotion, right? Yeah, exactly. And so you can use rational logic with it and say, you know, and that's why the true, you know, the great question is, is this true? Is this absolutely true in all circumstances? Because it's, 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 it's using logic on something that doesn't want to be, have any logic near it because right. it's been embedded in your emotional DNA in some ways. And it's trying to identify and catch the thought before it turns, before it results in emotion, which then leads to behavior. Right. Right. It's just tr trying to arrest that process and get in there and decide, do I really want to, you know, go into that emotion and that behavior? Is that really where I'm yeah. heading here? Is that, is that really helpful? Is it helpful? Is it necessary? Is it what I want now? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Hope and I are doing this, uh, a workshop up at a place called 1440 Multiversity. It's in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Hope, you've been to this retreat center. Uh, I've only seen pictures. Uh, oh, it, it looks pretty God. nice. <laughs> it is like a piece of heaven on earth. It's a very new retreat center. It's only been around for a year or two. Did they build it or did they move into existing... It, it looks they, like it's been there a while, but no, maybe not. All the buildings are brand new. Wow. It looks like mammoth. Uh, yes, village. It does look it's like mammoth big village. Craftsmen dorms, big or, stone you know, and wood. Beaut it is so beautiful. It's incredible. Um, no, they took over a site that I believe was owned by a church. Oh, okay. So it did have a number of complexes on it. Yep. But I, I believe that they completely they redid you know, everything. Redid everything. Mm. It's just gorgeous. And it's set in the redwoods. Mm. And at night, you can go in a hot tub that is surrounded by old redwood trees oh, and there's a spa on the premises we are in workshop um from nine to twelve and then i believe from two to four every day so there's a, quite a bit of free time there's a dining hall that's like you know a huge lodge with food that is out of this world i still dream of their cucumber mint iced tea <laughs> like, all the time no, it's the best food. Awesome. And that's included. But it's a really beautiful site, and it's a very peaceful place, and there's yoga classes and tai chi classes, and that's all included in your registration. Yeah, yeah. It's. I'm very excited to go spend some time up there. You'll love it. And and Hope and I are um, setting, setting the space, setting the table uh, for five days of exploration discovery, unpacking of some of this family dynamics that are especially, um, Im, you know, that, that impact women in, in particular ways. And the fun thing I love about doing workshops is when you get 20, 25 people in a room and you see how individually all this stuff shows up and then you see the bigger, more universal themes that show up too. It's always for me such a beautiful microcosm of humanity. It's it's one of the biggest joys I have is is watching women discover their uniqueness and then also to be able to look around the room and see the sisterhood of, oh, we're all in this together. Oh, it completely. And the field starts forming before people even get there. So I, I lead a couple retreats a year and it is remarkable how people who don't know each other will show up at a retreat because they're meant to be there together mm -hmm. and they're coming with similar stories and similar backgrounds and 
it's just extraordinary. So whoever winds up in that room with us yeah. is going to be the, at the right place in the right time in their lives. I, I believe that with my whole heart. Uh, me too. Me too. I totally trust that kind of thing. So if you want to know more about it, you can um, go to my website, which is kellycarlin.com, or you can go to Hope's website, hopeedelman.com. Uh, you can go on the 1440 dot uh, org. org website and it's up there it doesn't have a much of a description on our page up there so go to our websites uh where we talk about it more we're always on social media and facebook talking about it of course and uh, and if you're interested you can always contact us via our websites and we're both willing to have a conversation with you sure. to see if it's a good fit um and uh I- i'm just excited about this because i started working on a book proposal last year, which was really about my untangling with my father the last 10 years after he died and where I've gone in my life and what I've owned, whether it's my ambition, my creativity, my actual voice on stage, my no longer feeling invisible, all the things I did, and decided to put the book proposal aside because I realized that I didn't actually buy by writing another book about my family, I was just tangling myself up in my daughterhood more. And so I decided to put the book aside. But I have been contemplating this work, well, since grad school and, of course, deeply uh, since my dad died. So I'm excited to bring all of my tools through my master's program and all my Buddhism and all that stuff. And, of course, Hope's bringing all of her huge, huge, incredible um bag of tools with her too. So um, Hope, it's, first of all, I just want to thank you for being here and um, for finally, uh, for us finally getting to have this conversation mm-hmm. and for um, for people to, uh, well, just hear about the amazing work that you've done in the world uh, with mothers and daughters. And, uh, um, and I'm excited. I'm excited to jump into this big deep pond with you. Me too. I can't wait. I think we're going to have a really extraordinary week. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Before we go, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. First of all, I just want to thank Logan Heftel for taking on this podcast always and editing all the good stuff in and all the bad stuff out. (laughs) And of course, uh, if you are not supporting this podcast on Patreon, shame on you. What are you thinking? Come on over to my Patreon page. It's uh, www.patreon.com forward slash Kelly Carlin and check out all the things, the lovely, lovely things I'm offering there. But if you just want to support this podcast and get it a week earlier, like the secret people over on Patreon does, and a bonus, it's two bucks a month. Two bucks a month. That's like, that's not even cents every day. That's barely a cent a day. No, it's okay. It's a little more than a cent a day. But anyway. Come over and support the podcast. It's really, really, really appreciated. It makes me know that uh, you care about the content here and that the content is necessary in the world. And I think it's important that we all let everyone know that the work they're doing is important in the world. All of us. I support your work. You support mine. Here we go. All right, folks. Uh, So thank you so much for being here, listening, and have a great, great week. I am drowning in the darkness I am looking for the light But it seems everything I thought I knew Has disappeared from sight Cause in the land of fakes and